0: Up, production. A Warning. This episode contains graphic descriptions of sexual assault and violence against women. If this content does affect you, the number for Lifeline is 13 11 14. If you're concerned for your own or someone else's safety, call 1-800-RESPECT. If you're in Australia and it's an emergency, dial 000. Please listen with care. G'day. I'm former police officer Brent Sanders. And for the past 25 years, I've dedicated myself to sharing what I've learnt on the force to the Australian public so they can better protect themselves from falling victim to crime. So with the help of some of the most respected current and former detectives and high-ranking law enforcement agents, we're going to pull back the curtain on what life is like on the force what they have learned about how crime and criminals really work these are real stories from real detectives this week on crime insiders detectives the head of strike force raptor one of the most effective shutdown operations of bikies in australian history
1: bikies aren't individuals who do crime they need their banner and they need their group to put fear in people. As an individual, there are nobody.
0: Former superintendent Deb Wallace is a titan of New South Wales police. She joined the job in 1983 and was one of just eight women in a class of 100 at the academy. She was posted to a station in Blacktown as a uniform constable, but it came at a devastating time for Sydney and Australia. Anita Cobby was sexually assaulted and horrifically murdered whilst walking home from Blacktown Railway Station.
1: The man in charge of that case at the local level was Detective Sergeant Graham Rosetta, who still today is my hero and um, still a strong mentor and a dear, dear friend. Most murders um, are committed by people known to the victim. They're associated through social circles, family, whatever. They're the ones that detectives, still to today, generally know where they want to take the investigation and just work on gathering the evidence once they discard lines of inquiry that aren't right. The random ones are the really hard ones. And I think Graham realised after about the second day that Anita's murder was a, a random type murder. So understandably, with the media. Graham had no leads to give them to keep it alive on the front pages. And he was scared that they were going to start to withdraw, understandably, to the next story. So he was so determined, he needed the media to be engaged with him because he had nothing. And he was walking past me as he was going out into the backyard of the Blacktown police station, just on his own, just to have some time, I think. And suddenly he stopped and he looked at me and he said, "Wallace." how old are you? And I said, I'm 24. He said, how tall are you? And I said, I'm five foot eight. He said, actually, I've got an idea. I want you to come with me. So I walked out of the station up to, to the detective's office, which was upstairs. And he put the proposition to me. He said, look, I've just had this idea and it's not been, I think today they've done it some other times, but at the time it never been done. That was to do a reenactment to jog people's memories because he did have some information about um, screams from people in the street that she was taken from and also taillights of a car. So he wanted to sort of, I think, two things, keep the media engaged for the next five days leading into the reenactment the following Sunday, but also for timing to see if those witnesses were right. So I went out with her two girlfriends that were with her that night. They'd been They'd finished their shift and gone into Chinatown for a meal Then she left and caught the train back to Blacktown. So I went with the two girlfriends. I'm sure that was such a difficult task for them um, to take me and and find clothes similar to what she was wearing, which were a pair of um, ballet shoes in a way, um, a pair of um, ski pants that had like the loop under the leg and a T-shirt. On that Sunday, I went to Central Railway Station with Graham and a, a team of detectives and then they just I just got on the train that they thought she'd got on with the media allowed to follow me every step of the way. And they did that because they knew it was, you know, it was a gimmick in a way. Um, got off at Blacktown. And at that stage, Graham said to the media, who were very respectful, we want you to stop now. We need you to stay here and not follow us any further. And so from there, Graham asked me to walk the route just on my own where they thought she went. And they were following in cars about about 300 metres behind me, I guess. They wanted to get what, what was the lighting light, like, what was the feeling light, like, what was the traffic light. And then they asked me to stop exactly where they thought that witnesses had heard screams or saw the taillights. And I was asked to stop there and just stop while they did their you know looking around. And I remember people say to me, how did you feel? Well, up until that point, it was really... Part of the team, so just doing a job in a way, until I got to that point. And at that point, when it was just getting on dark and it was really quiet, and, try, and, I, and I just remember taking in the atmosphere and thinking at that time when she was walking home very innocently to, you know, had a lovely night out, um, was going away, I think, the next day on a trip with her estranged husband, probably not a lot of care in the world. And then suddenly a car comes down the street, does a U-turn, pulls up beside her and life at that point is almost, a bit, but dragged on. So my thoughts were when they dragged her into that car and then took her to a service station where they, you know, bought some, some cigarettes and then went drove a little further, which would have been, a, to do, do all that would have been about maybe half an hour. And then taking her into the paddock where they, yes, raped her continually for, God knows how long, before they finally killed her. There's no doubt in the world from what the evidence is that she fought with every inch of her life. And I remember thinking, what was the terror she must have felt in those first minutes that dragged on to perhaps hours, the terror that a single person could feel? I couldn't imagine. That And so that sort of was for me, um, again, that even though I was very junior, I remember looking at these detectives and when Graham gave me the offer later on to stay with the team, I didn't have really much to offer at that stage from an investigative point of view. I was very inexperienced. But uh, I remember thinking, this is an opportunity to stay with these men on this case. I'll grab it with both hands.
0: Standing there, like you said, on the side of the road on your own, and even though you're you it's a reenactment as a young woman yourself at that age of similar age to what Anita was to be standing there, goodness me what a what a surreal feeling that must have been, but almost impossible not to like you say try to imagine what that terror that that awful awful confrontation must have been like for her um did it have the desired effect Deb did it spark any information that came forward obviously the media. Would have been all around that. Did anything come forward as a result of that that perhaps otherwise wouldn't have?
1: Absolutely, there was so many people that responded. Everyone was touched by this case, understandably, the horror, and of course Graham um, won't say too much about. It, understandably, but it was a very confidential piece of information that Graham got, my understanding, and that was from someone that we will. I certainly don't know, and I don't think ever, even Graham might have even known who the identity was. It was a tip off, for one of a better word. And it was for someone to say, um, if you've got nothing else, perhaps you should look at these five, the three Murphy brothers, John Travis and Michael Murdoch, because they were at a party, my understanding, and in a nearby suburb and were supposed to return to the party after doing a crime to make some money. They didn't. And the tip-off was, if you've got nothing else, they didn't come back to the party, which is suspicious in itself. Maybe just look there. So Graham having nothing put all focus on these five. And within three weeks, they were arrested and charged with her wow. kidnapping and murder.
0: Three brothers, like you say, Deb, um, the Murphy brothers, aged 33, 28, 22, Michael Murdoch and uh, John Travis, who was clearly the ringleader. John John Travis, I think it's um, quite reasonable to say, was nothing short of an absolute psychopath and uh, terrible human being, as, as perhaps they all were. They all received life imprisonment, um, sent to prison for the term of the natural life. Now, this was at a time where in New South Wales, um, judicial life imprisonment wasn't actually for the term of their natural lives. And I think I'm right in saying, Deb, I think it was 91, 92, Truth and Sentencing, they went back to court and, and actually got recommitted to spend the 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 rest of their natural lives in prison being that they will they will die in prison as opposed to sort of a 15 20 25 year judicial life um, sentence is that correct
1: Yeah justice Maxwell who was an amazing judge and again I played a minor role just you know t- driving witnesses to court and things like that Justice Maxwell was an older judge and I think it took his toll and I don't and I think he retired not long after and I remember he said words very similar to when it was there on that day. Um, i I show you all the same mercy that you showed Anita Lorraine Cobby that night. I show you no mercy, and I sentence you to never to be released. I remember the scenes in the courtroom, people stood and cheered and high-fived and back out on the streets at Blacktown, there was you know it was almost like those scenes you see after you know the World War II people running down the street and embracing. I think Gary and Grace, in their wisdom, although you know a, a couple from Blacktown, they were two of the strongest and wise people that I've ever had the honour to, to be part of their lives.
0: This is this is mum and dad, isn't it, Deb? Gary, Gary and Grace. Mum and yeah. dad, sorry. Yeah, yeah, Gary and
1: Grace. And I think that troubled them in a way because that sentence of never to be released is a bit of a sentence that doesn't have a beginning or an end. And I think that worried them that when they passed on, when the file becomes just a file, what would happen? So you're right, and truth in sentencing, and they were a big part of that through their lobbying about law reform, as many others were, of course, to bring in truth in sentencing. So the five killers of Anita were brought back to be resentenced under legislation to life without parole. Because today people get the head sentence, which is the, the longest sentence, and then they get a, a parole period as well. So they were brought back to not not eligible for parole.
0: And as you said, Grace and Gary Lynch, uh, Anita's mum and dad, very, very instrumental in that. And and I think uh, Gary, Anita's father, went on to be a member of the New South Wales Parole Board. Is that, is that correct, Deb?
1: Yeah, um, before, my understanding is uh, historically that parole boards were generally, I think, if you want a better word, you know, bureaucrats and make decisions were made, you know, well-intentioned and, and no doubt very wisely. But Gary was always concerned that there was no community representative um, to show some transparency or a victim to have their words to their thoughts at least considered. So Gary became the very first member of the community and more or less a victim of c- crime on the parole board, which is now legislated and there must always be. In fact, I'm I'm very honoured to say that um, on the 1st of um, October, I take up one of those positions as a community representative.
0: Wow. Yeah, that's fantastic, Deb. And, and you mentioned that working with Graham Rosetta and and that team and having that experience very much sparked for you that interest in detective work and in investigative work. Also, possibly, could I say, the value perhaps in in utilising the media in cases like this? And I'd put my neck out, Deb, and say as you became more senior, made your way through the ranks. Were there times where uh, you drew back on that experience, and what Graeme Rosetta did in the Cobby case. Were you able to use the media in in investigations moving forward yourself?
1: Absolutely, and I think it's a credit to. It's a fine line, I guess, dealing with the media because you know there's a saying: they're either at your throat or at your feet, and I think what I always did and some journalists have come back to me over the years, you know, and in an unofficial capacity, and said, you always played a straight bat. I never gave scoops or inside information to people. I felt I needed to play a straight bat so that I didn't make enemies of the media as well because they're a very powerful tool. Um, But, of course, when we needed the messages to get out there, I think I had a good relationship with the media in that sometimes the fear of crime is enough to make people feel in the community really unsafe. So the media play a very important role in, in a way, hosing that down so we can get the facts out because police are very limited in what they can say when they're investigating things. So it's really frustrating at times because the media want us to say more but sometimes you just can't because there's people's lives at stake or you're on a you know you know that you've got someone in your sights and you can't give too much away so it's that fine balance of saying how much can we give and how much can we not give and we often say to the media who might want to print something can you not do that and i have to say very responsible journalists that i had the pleasure to be involved with always understood when we'd say please don't run that it's not worth the headline
0: Let's go forward to 1994. A transfer for you across to Cabramatta. I don't think it's being melodramatic to say mid to late 90s Cabramatta would have been perhaps labelled the, the crime capital of Australia at the time. Um, you started working within the Asian gangs in Cabramatta around that time, uh, particularly a very large gang by the name of 5T, which was a large street gang, mostly made up of young young kids who'd immigrated without family, often no English skills. Um, and it, it starts out as often these movements do as low level crime and then and then started to escalate into sort of more organised type uh, drug dealing, class A heroin and that type of thing. Deb, I'd be very interested in, in you walking us through your connection with the gang and you did some wonderful work in trying to prevent some of the younger kids in the area uh, migrating through to become members?
1: Yeah, I, I got to Cabramatta in 1990 and it was sort of a very... A lot of people didn't know about what was going on out there because there was not many um, detectives out there. The, the community, which was largely South Vietnamese refugees, with some, of course, from Cambodia and Laotian. But generally, that would be... The fear was South Vietnamese. Um, and they were very tolerant of crime and didn't understand. They, didn't, they were first generation. They didn't understand our laws, et cetera, et cetera. So they didn't really make a noise politically. It built up over those next few years. There was lots of street fighting and usual stuff that goes with that, sort of with Cabramatta being um, selling heroin. It was, a, it was a, bit, a bit of a controlled market because our heroin was being sold to sort of the Western suburbs people, whereas prior to 94, the biggest area was King's Cross, really, for the state. I suppose, for selling heroin, known as the, you know, that's where you went to the cross to get your gear. Mm. Something happened in 94, which was firstly, um, we had the political assassination of John Newman, so that the spotlight starts to turn onto Cabramatta. There was a fair bit of conjecture whether it was the 5T gang that took him out because Mr Newman was very vocal about sending them back and Knowing that could never happen because they were refugees, the investigators who did that pretty well ruled that out fairly quickly, and then it moved into being. Of course, Fong noh was convicted. It was it was certainly over just you know right political rivals. But the spotlight became on Cabramatta. About the same time, we were running street operations. You know, as you do, we were asked to compare the Cabramatta heroin. With the King's Cross heroin, so when we would seize drugs, we would get everyone tested to see what our heroin was to the King's Cross heroin. It turns out ours was half the price and five times stronger, and because I think the street soldiers, the Vietnamese, had a direct line through the importers, so of course we thought, oh, I hope no one finds out about this because boy, it'll explode. <laughs> well, I remember the article in one of the, the tabloids, and it said, the Smack Express. It was a double page spread, and it was it outlined. The purity that we had. So all roads led to Cabramatta oh, and geez. all that goes with that. You,
0: you could shoot you could shoot a shotgun up Darlinghurst Road at that point. Yeah. As all, yeah <laughs> every all train was loaded with. So
1: of course, <laughs> um the, the the street gangs in you know, increased because there was more heroin, there's more customers, blah blah. Around the same time, only not long after Mr. Newman was murdered, the leader of that street gang, the 5T gang, was a very charismatic leader with a lot of power. There's some suggestion that he wanted to move away from selling heroin because he was concerned his own community would start using it. At that stage, they were pretty well drug-free of heroin. He could see the signs of the younger street runners starting to taste the heroin. So some suggestion he wanted out, which meant those that relied on him to distribute would hurt business. So he was murdered. And so was the person with him, his lieutenant. So, of course, at that stage now... Politically, Cabra Matters now under the spotlight. A political assassination, you know, murder all these murders, all these drugs, blah, blah. My boss at the time um was called a man called um, he was a chief superintendent at the time, Paul McKinnon was no doubt dragged into town. And um, whatever was said, he came out of that meeting with the commissioner and no doubt some high-ranking, maybe some politicians, I don't know who was there. But said to me, um, "We need to take the streets back." And I said, "Oh, that's yeah, we've been trying." And he said, "No, I've got a plan." And I said, "Oh, what's the plan?" He said, "Well, I'm going to I'm announcing the Cabramatta Gang Squad." And I went, "Oh, that's fantastic! You know, more resources, we get more police here. You know, people that are focusing." He went, he just looked at me and said, "What are you raving on about?" And I said, "You know, we're bringing these specially trained, highly skilled investigators and." Tactical police, he went, where would I get the resources from to do that? Congratulations, you're now the commander of Cabramatta Gang Squad.
0: It's just you. And yeah. I, was a young, <laughs> I was
1: a young sergeant and I said, ah, this could be the shortest career in history. He said, don't worry, I'll give you some staff, but you can't have trained detectives. You've got to have young uniformed cops with you. So, I oh, that's oh, that's going to be even better. Thank you. I got the best group of cops you could ever ask for. I was so blessed. But... Paul also, or Mr. McKinnon, at the time I called him, gave me a book as well to read and said, Wallace, if you get stuck, read that. And he just threw it across. He was a man of few words. And it was Sun Tzu, The Art of War. And I thought, how's that going to help me? So I had a read and it was quite interesting. And one of the things it said was, water is stronger than rocks. In other words, you know, you go by stealth and, you know, all that sort of stuff. But one of the things was, before you can defeat your enemy, you must know them. And that resonated with me because I, as much as I thought I knew, this, you know, these gangs we've been locking them up for, you know, five years, did I really understand them? So I went out and approached them and the first thing they said was, um, because we always had a fairly interesting relationship with them, it was very amicable in a way. Their view was, we do the crime, we do the time. You get us, we lock us up. That's the way it goes. And I told them about my new job, and they laughed a bit and said, you know, how you know, are you going to break us up? You know, Although we're vulnerable, they said our leader's dead, so we are a snake without a head. We, at the moment, we're weak. We're weakened. We have no brain, but we are. We will grow a new one soon, so you need to, just, to get us while we're weak. And I thought that was really insightful, telling me how I could do it. But then they said you know what? Three things will happen to us as senior gang members. And that is, we will get killed because that's what happens when you join a gang. We'll go to jail because you'll still do your job and lock us up. Or if we're lucky to survive the first two, we may just grow up and grow out. And you may cut the grass, but there's weeds to come through. And all this is very, you know, very philosophical. And I Very, said,
0: very philosophical. Yes. yes. And I said, what
1: do you mean? They said, well, there's a group of young boys following us as role models and they feel they don't need to go to school. The reason we are again is because we came from um, refugee camps and we made our way here. Often we're the oldest boy who our family could afford to get us out of Vietnam and we don't have family here so we bonded together and, yes, we did crime because we have no choice in a way. We're not excusing ourselves but that's how life was. The challenge for you to stop the cycle is to give the ones coming through education because with education, there's hope. With hope, they get a job and then they go on not to do crime. So that, that sounded pretty good. Take that, point one, I'll do that. I went around to our amazing schools in the area who were just the best, Cabramatta High and Cannibal High, and they said, Deb, as long as we'd love to help you, you know, you've got to understand these kids are on the street and they don't speak English. Where, what do we do with them? I understood. So with that dilemma and them saying, you know, big talker, you promised you'd get them in school, but you're not fulfilling. And about that time, a dear friend of mine, who's been a friend since 1995, Father Chris Riley from Youth Off The Streets, made his way to Cabramatta and introduced himself. And all I could think of at the time was, oh God, another do-gooder. That's just what I need right now. He said to me very simply, and he was really cool, he had, you know, he had his black, shirt on and he had his collar and he had a pair of Levi jeans that still had, I think, hay from his farm. He had cowboy boots that looked like they'd never been cleaned. And he said, let me meet them. And I don't know what made me say it to him, but I said, father, can you get rid of the collar? And I don't know why I said it. He went, what for? And I said, well, I don't know, but you know, let's just go up without the collar. And he went, all right. (laughs) Just looking at me like I'm an idiot. We went up and I introduced them to him. And out of absolute respect, they said, which I always love father because father's only eight years older than me, but they said, is he your father? I said, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, you know. Um, Father looked a bit disgruntled at the time. And he said, no, I'm a registered school because I was the principal of Boys Town and then I went onto the streets of the cross so I can bring the school to you. And they looked with open eyes and said, you teach us here. And he said, I will teach you here. But there's a condition. And the condition is we will do it here in this open air cafe, but they used to call me Madam, but Madam will be here every minute because there'll be no drug selling, no, no machete attacks. For the three hours, three days a week that we'll do this, it's, it's a, like, like Switzerland. And they agreed. So we did that um, three days, three hours until eventually we had an opportunity to take the young ones down to his farms on the Southern Highlands to disengage them from the gangs. And the gangs supported that. And from those um, group of eight that we took, I managed to follow, track them, not continually because they needed to do their own thing, but they never committed a crime um, when they returned. And they're now productive members of society.
0: So Deb, operationally, how did that sit? On the one hand, you're in there trying to create rapport and in fact, trying to assist some of the young ones and not moving into that environment. On the other hand, you're a police officer. And you're dealing with gangs who are distributing heroin, dishing out street justice, breaking a plethora of crimes on a daily basis. How was that balance achieved, both operationally and and for you personally?
1: It had a priority. First and foremost, I was a cop, and uh, they knew that. I laid the ground rules out really early and said, if we're going to do this thing with the school, do not confuse kindness with weakness. After we do our three hours, if you do one step out of line in those three hours, it's game off. You make the call, it's game off. But after the three hours, you will go back to business and so will I. So they, the ground rules were laid really early. So, yep, first priority for me was a cop. You step out of line, you do a crime, you're going to get locked up. There was no, no if and buts.
0: So all black and white. And, and, and there's that sort of interesting um, – there's that sort of respect, isn't there, between the gangs, particularly the higher echelon of the gang in, in, in this particular situation and, and someone like yourself. There's the respect that, that you've got a job to do, but also at the same time you're trying to help them. But I, I love that quote, Deb, uh, from you um don't confuse uh, kindness with weakness. It sort of sums up the position, doesn't it?
1: Yeah, there was that. Um, and and we, we were outnumbered by them. So in a way, we weren't going to antagonize them more than we had to. And I remember on numerous times I'd walk, I remember on a Friday night, I was, had a really bad head cold. I was on shift and I had to get up to that chemist to get some Sudafed. I don't know if they still have Sudafed these days. And I got out of my car and I'm just walking to the chemist. It was like 50 metres, 100 metres. And two gang members got on either side of me. And they said, Madam, where are you going? And I said, I'm going to the chemist. Oh, I've got a head cold. And they said, Madam, you shouldn't walk the streets of Cabramatta at night. It's a very dangerous place. And I said, well, <laughs> you're the only ones I need to worry about. And they went, yeah. oh, yeah, but you don't have to worry about us. We'll walk you back. And, yeah, oh, so that's sort yeah. of the way it was.
0: The leverage there, Deb, was to provide sort of hopes, education, give them something to focus on. And And interestingly, from what you're saying – that information was given to you by those in the gang who, sort of, uh, through their own admission, are almost beyond sort of reproach. That you, there's no, there's no point trying to help us. We're gone. But the grass, the weed scenario, you, you've got to do something there. And that, that's a big, big change. I'm sure at the time and how, particularly, say a gang as high-profile as Five T were, were policed. Did, did you get some strange looks going back into Cabramatta Station? Did you get, did you get some, um, some pushback from, from oh. the local command?
1: Absolutely, I did. And it was, you know, it was was sort of said to me that it wasn't my role as a social worker. I'm not a social worker. I'm a cop, lock them up. Mr. McKinnon supported me and I was so grateful because I felt felt quite isolated. And it was his words of encouragement to say, why do you think I got, years later, not at the time, but years later, because a young young sergeant running a street gang unit um, was sort of a big challenge, and it really did cement my credibility that I wanted to be a street cop. I went to him because the Royal Commission was sitting at the time. Allegations were made that I was the new leader of the 5T because of the relationship I had with them and the meetings I had with them. The Royal Commission investigators didn't really understand what I was doing, and, uh, you know, it was all very cloak and dagger and a whole lot of things, and um, they asked to meet with me um, privately. They'd actually gone to the snooker hall, where the gang hang out and handed the investigators handed the gang members their cards and said, we want to talk to you about Madam. Do you, do you give her money? And they looked at him and went, well, she drives a really bad car with no paint on it. They think if we give her money, she'd buy a better car. Um, but they turned up at the police station, the gang members, and handed me their card and said, we don't know, Madam, what's going on, but these people came to our snooker hall and asked about you, but we don't understand what's going on, but here's their card. And it was from the Royal Commission. And so I rang Paul. I got a short phone call shortly after that. Paul said, don't meet with them. And I said, well, they've just told me I'm not going to tell anyone that, you know, that I've got to meet with them. And he said, well, and I've broken every rule by ringing you. He said, stand down, calm down. I'll ring them. And he rang them. And to their credit, the next day they rang me and apologized and said, we're sorry. Um, We were given misinformation. Um, But watch your back. And I said, I'm never speak another gang member as long as I live. And said, oh, dear. You know,
0: but, you know, how, how fickle that whole process is, um, Deb. Had you not had that support from that McKinnon that far up the chain, could have been a totally different outcome.
1: Yeah. And, look, I understood totally um, where the cops were coming from. And in a way, in a way, I was lucky that I was a female because there was no expectations around that I had to do it the way we've always done it. I was given that freedom to think a little differently and I'm a very strong believer in crime prevention. At the end of the day, cops have to lock up the crooks. That's their role. But if we can prevent it in the first place, you save so much money for the community and for the people involved. Today, crime prevention is part of our DNA. It's, or not, I'm not thin anymore, but part of the cops, I think everything they do has a strong prevention focus, you know, intervention disruption focus, not just prosecution.
0: So Deb, Task Force Raptor was created 2009 as a reaction to a um, gang-related murder at uh, Sydney Airport, uh, domestic airport, broad daylight, families, what have you, exceedingly violent confrontation at the airport. Can you just share some of that detail with us, Deb?
1: There was a group coming back from Melbourne on the plane, one group coming back, one other opposing gang on the flight as well. Rings ahead! Ah, oh, there's a whole bunch of Hills Angels here. Get the boys together. We'll, you know, be waiting at the airport for them for whatever reason, other than they are just we're a commo, you're Hills Angels, and we don't like each other. They probably don't even know why. Um, and sure enough, they get off. They're walking through the terminal. It's public place, like domestic terminal, crowded, children, families, you know, holiday makers, and these idiots decide to punch on and bash each other and pick up. One picks up a bollard. And it hits the other one and he he dies. And, of course, a number of people all get charged with that, including um, Mick gets charged with his murder, which was later dropped to manslaughter. And he does time for all that, as do a number of others for their involvement in the whole scenario. That's the kickoff because I think the outrage was, we all know bikies hate each other and they'll discriminate use of violence. We know that. But suddenly, through no obvious reason, they're doing it. Disregard if they can be this brazen at an airport, what's next? So it's a bit like anything, something, a catalyst for something to, to be done.
0: And there's there's the line that's been crossed, isn't it, Deb? I mean, you know, police are well aware of the violence that goes on uh, between the gangs and that type of thing. But to take that absolutely senseless violence into a scene like a domestic airport, I don't know what day of the week it was, but I remember the scenes, it was sort of during the day, there was families there, like you say, kids. And probably a blessing that there was probably only only one that was um, um, deceased as a result of that. Mick Howie, I think, uh, head of the Common at the time, or, or close or close to it, and um, this led to the formation of a strike force, Strike Force Raptor. This was set up in two thousand and nine. Around that time, Deb, my understanding is that you were promoted to superintendent. Uh, you were the commander of the Asian Organised Crime Unit, also worked in the Middle Eastern organised crime, I think for a period of seven years. 2014, you became the commander of Strike Force Raptor. That's my my understanding. Whose uh, brief, really, in that context, was to work with um, outlaw motorcycle gangs, bikey gangs, to disrupt, disband and dismantle these gangs. Deb, can you share with us your involvement there from 2014?
1: Yeah, I, I was... Um I asked to go across there because I'd been at Middle Eastern Organised Crime for eight years before that, and I really loved that model of disruption and dismantling through using investigative skills, tactical police, and a highway patrol. So that was the model we used following on from the Middle Eastern. So going across to Strike, Force Raptor and the gang squad was, for me, a natural progression. That's what I believed in. When I got there, I knew a lot about Asian crime. I knew a fair bit now about Middle Eastern organised crime, well, maybe disorganised crime. But Outlaw Motorcycle Gangs was a new world for me. So I think what I'd learned early on in my career is don't pretend you know something if you don't. You're not the expert of all things, neither should you be. Rely on those that do and let them teach you. So I got together. The, The amazing teams that had been there had been doing amazing work through their proactivity. And we just nutted out a few different things. I said to them, tell me about what a bikey looks like, what they, what their psyche is, what their business model is, what are they, what's their culture, what's their ethos, what do they like the best, what do they do so that I can get my head around it. And we highlighted a number of those things. We just like whiteboarded, for want of a better word. And then the team decided that the best way we can disrupt them is to take out all those things that they liked. Now, that was going to be a challenge because you needed good, different laws, perhaps, to take out different things. So we set about using a, it sounds, our, our term was um, consequence-based policing approach. If you do crime, you're going to pay the consequence, whether you can drive a car, it'll affect whether you can put up DA approval, whether you can have a clubhouse. And we used different laws and got amendments to laws. The, the government, when we approached them, were very receptive to amending the laws that we needed to combat them. In fact, one of the most powerful ones was the consorting legislation, which was an old piece of legislation from the 20s used for the razor gangs around King's Cross at the time. And we modified it to fit the modern times.
0: And when you say consorting laws, these are laws that um, prohibited known criminals from associating with each other. And I think, um, you know, as you said, these were established in the 20s. And what you did was you sort of dusted those laws off, but perhaps started to also apply them to use of social media, phones and that type yep. of thing. Is that sort of how you modernise those laws?
1: Yeah, before it was association had to meet, hence why would they have bikey clubhouses? That was their thing, because we meet, you know, behind closed doors. We can plot criminal activity, hence the, mm. um, all that sort of stuff. is a different piece of legislation. But the consorting was we need to associate, because bikeys, in my view, aren't individuals who do crime, they're a, they're a, you know they, they need their banner and they need their group to fit, put fear in people as an individual, they're a knife no, and never nobody. So if we could take out that that the, uh, the ability to associate like such in bikie runs, which was the you know run down the highway on their bikes with their colours on. so um, the new legislation was exactly what you said it wasn't just meeting in person because we know people now use phones and texts and social media and so it encapsulated all of that it was very powerful in fact so powerful that three nomads took us to the high court to challenge us on a constitutional challenge of the right of people to associate we sort of held our breath because we knew this was a very good crime prevention tool that if they couldn't associate they couldn't plot they couldn't do runs And I remember they took us in October of 2014 to the High Court. Now, the Rebels, the biggest bikey gang at the time in Australia, was due to have their national run from Sydney to Coffs Harbour that very weekend in October. So it was a big thing, you know, thousands turning up or a thousand or whatever and pay their bit. And off they go up the highway, fear, putting fear in people, no doubt. So they took us to the High Court. The nomads took us to the High Court on, on the Thursday. And on that day, well, they took us some months before, of course, but the decision was handed down on the Thursday before that run to say that the legislation was validated. So we put out, well, now we're out. We're going to take you all on. And we even set up mobile police stations ready to go. Um, even though with consorting, you have to warn people first. But they were so nervous of this legislation because we were still, we hadn't really applied it because we knew with the constitutional challenge, what's the point in applying a law that's under challenge? But now where the gloves are off and we can apply this. So they basically cancelled the run. And that that was a watershed moment for us because from that time on, through the work of Raptor, dismantling them and being there, being in their faces, national runs were a thing of the past for New South Wales.
0: Now, another another area that you worked on, which I th- thought was brilliant in its simplicity, were council laws, uh, bylaws. And as we all know, goodness me, if you if you want to put up a, a shed in your backyard, you've got to jump through a thousand hoops with local council to get approval. These gangs have gang homes, often fortified. They have clubhouses. They have surveillance cameras. They have fences that are probably four metres high, barbed wire, the whole nine yards. You looked at those and thought the old death by a thousand cuts, I think, is the principle. Um, Did did they get council approval for those cameras? Did they get council approval to have that fence? This is another approach, Deb?
1: Yeah, absolutely, because, you know, they... Living their world, you know, in the world of rivalry and all that sort of stuff, shoot, drive-by shooting. So they'd build these, you know, big fences with, you know, security gates and blah, blah. So absolutely, that was, you know, that was just one other thing that we hit them with DAs. The other thing was, um, which I thought was pretty good, one of the guys come up with, I mean, dismantling their clubhouses was brilliant. That was a sergeant came up with that. That was brilliant. <laughs> but um, the best one, another one was, um, we know if they're going to do revenge attacks or go and you know, do runs. They've got to have a driver's license. So we, they went through the the debt recovery office to say who had fines and who hadn't paid them, and got their license cancelled. Things so small, little things, but certainly makes you know they have to drive to sh- do a shooting. Well, so, that,
0: that's it, and and you know. Yeah these aren't blokes who are going to be racing up to pay those uh, parking fines and minor speeding fines on time before the bailiff comes around. So they just, you know, they don't care. So you, you get them on that, which means they lose their license. And and then it would follow, of course, that they're going to drive disqualified without a license. So now they're driving disqualified. They've got a bit of criminal history. We're on the verge of some imprisonment time there almost, yeah. aren't we?
1: Yeah, exactly. Or, or even just the, you know, the cops know that because with these great um, number plate detection things that brought in, so you know, they're flagged. So we don't have to have a thousand cops on the street. As soon as they drive past a mobile thing, bang, because we often knew whether, which way they'd go to their businesses or their school pickups or whatever.
0: And of course, hand in hand with this, Deb, I, I listened to a, a wonderful interview you did recently and um, you said, of course it wasn't all just this, this approach went hand in hand with some other more old school, hard nosed policing going in through the front door of these houses, these clubhouses uh, doing warrants for drugs and things such as that. Um, You you know, we were talking off air before I, um, I had a couple of years in the riot squad uh, in New Zealand back in the eighties and um, 80, 90% of the work was, was dealing with the gangs over there. And, and um, I'd read with such interest some years ago, Sydney Morning Herald article about task force Raptor and, what you've just described. I sat there with a big smile and I say, thank goodness me, it's so simple, but so effective. And, um, I look at back at the time that I was dealing with the gangs and how, if we'd had this additional string to our bow, how even more effective that police sort of presence would have been. But um didn't you also do something dead with local licensees where they agreed to not allow anyone in wearing their colours, those patches, so they couldn't come in with the patches on trying to intimidate everybody?
1: Yeah, one of our inspectors, and in fact it, it was when I first got there um at Raptor, we had a meeting with there was there was a lot of big presence of the Hells Angels in the Parramatta area. And they would do their bit. They'd go in and sit all sit down in their, you know, fancy dress outfits, all their, oh, heavens, which did I, I disrespected their colours and sit down in their colours. And, yeah, they're not doing anything, so to speak. But, you know, if they've got night people next door with a family having dinner, it's pretty intimidating to see Table of Ten of Hell's Angels. So um, I asked this naive question about, well, why are they allowed to sit there in their colours? They said, because it's not unlawful. And I thought about that. And so I had a great, Inspector, I had uh, two amazing team. Let me tell you, I had the best team. <laughs> He'd come up with ideas. I'd come, as soon as I put in my office, I go, oh, now, now what are we going to do? And he was named Detective Chief Inspector Darren Beach. He got himself on the liquor accord, which is where licensees and police meet to make sure that licensed premises are safe for people, blah, blah. And they came up with this thing that they'd have, part of the liquor license would be that colors are banned from licensed premises, as part of their liquor license. So um, we would support, of course, because some would try it on and walk in and the publicans and the licensees were fantastic in reinforcing. And they could, and we said to them, blame us. Like, just tell them they have to leave because the cops will be around. Yeah,
0: third party it. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So,
1: and it was brilliant because, you know, there they are, might have their, because, because there was no more clubhouses, just about, they then go, well, let's go to the local pub for our meetings. But of course, um, they couldn't wear their colors. So it wasn't much fun now.
0: They're going to have to walk because none of them have got a license.
1: Well, and it's a bit of an identity <laughs> crisis, you know, just walking in as a group, it's not nearly as fun as intimidating people with your colours on.
0: Yeah. It's a funny old thing, isn't it? I mean, you can't simplify it too much, but in, in my experience dealing with the gangs and, um, you know, individually, one-on-one, you you can talk a bit of sense to them, but it's, uh, you know, collectively, of course, they're a different beast to deal with. And um, they've got all the colours and all, the, all the, the mean stickers, the tattoos and all the rest of the carry-on, but... Um, In my experience, you're often dealing with the mentality of a 13 or 14-year-old sort of juvenile when you're dealing with some of these individuals. And um, and I am sure that a lot of them would have really battled with this whole process as to how they're going to deal with it. And I guess, Deb, the proof's in the pudding. Did this work? Did this approach? Did this chipping away, this death by a thousand cuts? Did you win out? Did you have the success that you'd, that you'd anticipated?
1: It's funny, you know, when you do proactive policing and nowhere in the world can you measure the crime you prevent,
0: I mm. guess, taking mm. it from
1: that. So we look at how did I measure it? Well, firstly, suddenly their visibility was gone and people were saying, we're not seeing them around. They couldn't have national runs in New South Wales. Disrupting them, absolutely. You know, you started to see those senior members move offshore. Fantastic. You know, they, it, because the environment was so hot. I think one of the biggest um, breakthroughs we had was, yes, we're doing it really good and we're doing all this and it's great. We're getting these great laws. But then we'd see from South Australia, what have you got? Oh, we've got firearm prohibition orders. Well, we'd like those. Well, can we have your consortium? So we ended up forming like a board of directors, my counterparts all around the country. And we would talk purely operations, got rid of the bureaucracy and talked what we could do. And that went further to get the federal counterparts. And then you're opening a whole new world because now you've got taxation. Now you've got Centrelink. Now you've got immigration. It was fantastic. So I think the the proof was there. People often say, oh, well, we're just a bunch of guys getting together. The Gladiators are a good example up at the Maitland Way. They tell me they're the oldest biker gang in Australia with their banner, 1963 or something. Great bunch of guys that I met, the older guys. Mm. And I and they had this magnificent clubhouse like an RSL. Unbelievable this magnificent pool that had their logo in little tiny tiles on the bottom. And I said to them when we're raiding them and taking out the clubhouse, why don't you guys drop the 1% and be a social club? Because you've got all this memorabilia. Just be a social club because by declaring yourselves as outlaws, you're declaring yourself. We're going to come after you because you've declared it. So, you know, I don't have a great deal of sympathy for outlaw motorcycle gangs because they're the ones that declare themselves as criminals and our job is to bring them back inside the law. You know, a couple of things I learned earlier in my career was it's okay to say I don't know and it's okay to say I need help.
0: Yeah, fantastic. So
1: you can imagine how proud I was one day when a a sergeant and a senior constable from Raptor walked into my office and said, you know, Deb, we've got them on the run. We're doing all this great stuff. There's no more clubhouses. We've got no runs. Now what we want to do, we want to do gang prevention programs and we want to go into the detention centres. And they did. And today, those same police do it in their own time, still with the detention centre.
0: Wow. Isn't that fantastic? And, and that harkens back, Deb, to uh, the success that you had with the 5T, the young fellas there at, uh, down the streets of Cabramatta. Different gang, but same principles apply, I guess, in some regards, particularly with those younger ones.
1: Yeah. They, the, the, the established gangs aren't going to do it themselves. They need, they need you know, if you want a better word, cannon fodder. And mm. they target the vulnerable youth and say, look, come with us, bro. Look what we can give you. It's pretty sexy, you know. Girls, drugs, you know.
0: Mm, mm. So Deb, a stellar 36-year career comes to a close with retirement in 2019. Since that time, you've been very busy in a volunteer basis in a number of different groups, organisations, one being Grace's Place, um, a group started by Gary and Grace Lynch, the parents of of Anita Cobby. Deb, can you just share with us your role there and and perhaps uh, some of the other environments that you work with um, uh, in a voluntary role?
1: Yeah, I I retired um, just before COVID hit. So I thought, oh, heavens, I've gone. And And I was one of the very lucky ones that was able to retire mentally and physically fit. And so I went from, I remember my last day was the 13th of December, 2019. And, and the the Raptor guys are still doing kicking doors in that night. So I'm st- actually don't finish <laughs> until midnight on the 13th. So they're still sending me orders. <laughs> so I'm still approving orders and suddenly midnight happens and all of my electronics and access goes. So it was a bit of a bat like going from 24 seven to nothing. So I knew that, and then COVID, but I knew I had to do something. It's just, I suppose, that's typical what cops do with, been given, you know, work for the public service, but really we're servants of the public. So I needed to do that. So I do meals on wheels, which is ironic because I do not cook at all, but rest <laughs> assured, all the people that receive them in the Lake Macquarie area, I only peel potatoes because I'm not very good at anything else. Um, and I went on board of the local uh, workers club at Swansea. And um, of course, um, the other labor of love is Gary and Grace Lynch. I became very close to not initially, after the anita's murder it was until some years later that we reconnected and um i was i could imagine what they were doing with the homicide being the original founders with um, peter and christine simpson another family who suffered tragedy with little ebony in 92 so they became the founders to help other families and and gary and grace Became my my friends, and we'd share birthdays as did with Catherine, their daughter, and uh, they were doing amazing stuff. And it wasn't until Grace um, Gary died; he was ninety, and Grace died a few years later. She was eighty seven. And I think, in a way, we often she often would say how, as much as she was proud of what they did, turning something so bad into something supportive for other families, she had a special focus with children, and um, on her death through Martha Gibal, the wonderful um, CEO of, of Homicide Victim Support and all the wonderful families who over the years have just bonded like a, a real family themselves, said, well, you know what, let's turn her dream, I guess, or her, if anything, a regret into a reality. So we went about for seven years fundraising and we're now pleased to say on the 2nd of February this year, um, the, the anniversary of Anita's murder, we had the official opening of a world's first trauma centre and residential centre built at Duneside, not far from where Anita and Gary and Grace lived, um, um, which is where children can go following a homicide. Instead of going to a motel room, you know, to get away from the crime scene or the media, this is a, a sort of a respite place where it's filled with love and manned by volunteers and fantastic psychologists who give their time. And children can go there and can be given fantastic support and love and of course it's appropriately called Grace's Place
0: Deb it has been such a pleasure to meet with you and have a chat and and I just want to thank you so much for taking the time to come into the the studio. 36 years of serving uh, the good people of New South Wales and uh, the bulk of it very much at the sharp end amongst some of the toughest criminals in the state Deb, uh, it's just been such a pleasure to chat with you and I want to just thank you sincerely so much for your service and uh, thank you for spending some time with us here this afternoon.
1: Thank you, Brent. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you today.
0: Crime Insiders Detectives is a listener original production. It's hosted by me, Brent Sanders, produced by Ed Gooden and sound designed and imaged by Link Kelly.